Good to see everybody tonight. Everybody doing okay? My name is Josh, and uh, glad to be back with you on Wednesday nights, and uh, looking forward to being together in the book of Leviticus again, in case y'all thought we'd forgot about it. We're not. We're going to chapter 16 this evening, so uh, we'll be looking at that together. I don't no, I, I was just checking and asking Chris about announcements. Man, what a great month that we had in October, which I believe ended with a fantastic Sunday with Reach Sunday this past Sunday. Just really excited about what God's doing, the life of our church, and ready to hear, uh, as y'all have been hearing on Wednesday night, ready to hear about those stories of how God is using our people using us to advance the gospel as we have those conversations with others, gospel conversations. So we're play, praying for that and looking to hear those stories. And if you got one, please tell us. We'd love, love to hear it. Um, what's going on? I want to remind you as we kind of move here into the, by the way, I don't know if y'all know this, but it's November. <laughs> you know, I like growing up when I was a kid, I didn't even think that 2023 was a possibility. You know what I'm saying? Like that year existed in some place that I didn't have any understanding or comprehension of. And now we're about at 2024. And so uh, we're moving into November. I remember November 2023 because I, I got married uh, the first time. To Allison in, uh, did y'all, I only been married once, but it was the first. I got married in November 1998. And so I remember back then saying, you know, this is an odd year to get married because it's not easy to do the math for somebody who's not easy. You got this 98, so you always got to figure it out. So I was thinking 10 years, 2008, 15, those will be the hard ones, like the 50. So 25 years in November, because I was thinking forward, 2023 will be 25 years, but I don't have to worry about that. It won't be here for any time soon, but here we are. And so um, I, now Allison knows that I remember, and I've got to figure out what to do about it. But 2020, November 2023, we're thankful that you are here. I want to remind you, even on Wednesday nights, there's a lot going on in the life of our church. Somebody came to me tonight. Uh, Pastor Nathan is, is leading our Equip Institute in the loft now. It has been, it has kind of outgrown the space we were in, and they're in the loft, which is great. So, uh, and, and just to remind you, that is for everyone, and you sure can, surely can, or you can, go to that anytime you want to. You can jump into there and come. You can be like, oh, he's, he's doing Leviticus 16. Huh? So I'm going to go that tonight, and then I'll be back. So you can go back and forth however you want to do it. You're free to jump in anytime, anywhere. This is kind of our, our base on Wednesday night. This is where we, we're always doing this, and you're welcome to jump in on any of those topics or anything that he's speaking on at any time if you would like. Also want to remind you that this Sunday, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify this, we'll see it again, this Sunday will be in her capacity and role, Kathy Doherty's last Sunday with us, in her capacity and role. I told Kathy if she dare think she's leaving us and going somewhere else, then we will put out some sort of hunt for her 
and bring her safely back. But that's not her wishes. She'll still be here. She'll still be in the life of the church. But at the same time, she is uh, retiring. And this will be her last Sunday. So this coming Sunday, and I know Kathy has had so much of an impact on so many of your lives. This coming Sunday from 3 to 5. Am I saying that right, Chris? 3 to 5 here in, in this space right here. Is that I'm saying that right? Where? The Welcome Center. So if you're coming here, you'll find it before you get here. And so in the, in the Welcome Center, we will be having a time to, to just gather together and celebrate her and, uh, and speak with her this coming Sunday. It would be really, really sad. As much as she has invested in, I know, this church and many of you, it'd be really sad if nobody showed up. That's not going to happen. Y'all need to be here and show up and, and thank the Lord for Miss Kathy, three to five this Sunday. I'll be here. I'll be here. Um, other than that, let's go to chapter 16 of Leviticus, and let's look at this chapter tonight. Uh, let's look at this chapter tonight. Chapter 16, probably uh, out of all of the chapters in Leviticus, the most famous of chapters, and so we're going to see if we can't look at it together. And before I do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to allow us to be here and to join together in this time. Father, we, we thank you for your word as we look to your word. And, and tonight, God, I'm thankful that all over our campus, in our preschool and in our uh, elementary in our students, Father, with our middle schoolers, with, in our college ministry, and in every other little room around the place, including our institute, what's happening tonight is your people are gathered in this place to study your word. And God, I'm thankful for that. And so God, may you use your word to, to teach us and to mold us, to shape us into who you would have us to be, to, to lead us where you would Take us, Father, and to, to give us strength and to give us comfort, to give us boldness to advance your gospel. Father, use your word tonight to make us better believers in you. All of this we ask for your glory and for your name. Amen. Chapter 16 of Leviticus, if you have like in my Bible headings there that, that aren't necessarily inspired by the Lord, but just kind of give you a heading of the passage, you see it's the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, or in the, uh, what you also may hear it as is Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So this is the Day of Atonement. I would argue in some sense that this is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. This is, this is an ending, what I would say, to the first half of the book of Leviticus. It comes here almost in the middle, and, and the first half of the book of Leviticus has been very theological. Now, there's been some, some, some things in there that are practical and other things, but you're dealing with the offerings, you're dealing with the priest who will give the offerings, you're dealing with all of that, all of that around the, the, the coming together at the temple, the tabernacle, uh, and, and you're dealing with those things as to how the people of God can be made clean 
and pure before God? And how can they truly show their thanksgiving? And how can they truly have fellowship with God? All of those things are found in the first half of the book of Leviticus. And we're coming to the, what I would say, the pinnacle of the book, if you will. The second half, as we'll see, chapter 17 and on, we'll start dealing with the more practical. How do you live holy every day of your life? And so what makes us holy here in the first half, and then how do we live as holy ones every day in our life, is kind of how Leviticus is set up. So 16 becomes the pinnacle of all of it. And this day of atonement is important. It's, it's, a, it's a day that, that will be established if you, if you look at the end of that, end of this, uh, verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And so this day is a day that is established for the people of Israel to deal with their sins. How many? All their sins, right? So this day is important. And up until now, even this year, the Jews celebrate, if you will, Yom Kippur, still continuing. So what does it make for us? Because when we have our Old Testament in front of us, we remember that we don't read this Old Testament like Jewish rabbis do, right? We don't, we don't read it like that. We read this Old Testament in light of Jesus and what he has done for us. And, and, and you guys know my illustrations better than I do. In fact, I'm pretty confident that everybody in this room that's been following along with me can teach all that I've been teaching just as good as I can. Because we've been talking about the same type stuff, how every passage in the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. It's a, it's a brushstroke in a picture that the Lord is painting that is Jesus himself. And he is the full revelation of God. And so now you have this progressive revelation that is happening. So every story, every sacrifice, every understanding of the priesthood, everything that's coming together is pointing us to a Messiah who will come for us and fulfill all of these things. And I believe that is the case when it comes to these offerings, when it comes to these sacrifices. Jesus fulfills all of them. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of those are found in Christ Jesus. And what we have said from the start of this is that what Leviticus is teaching us, it's teaching us what it takes for us to be made right with God and have fellowship with him. How wicked our sin is, how our sin has set us apart from God, not just a distance away from him, separate us from him, but put us under his judgment, right? Put us under his judgment in a word that the New Testament use, his, uses, his wrath, put us under his wrath as just deservers of it. And unless something happens, unless something happens for us in our place, some sacrifice made, then we are under God's wrath still. We're under his judgment still. And so Leviticus is telling us what it takes. And remember, what God is doing with his people is he's wanting to dwell with them and be with them. So a holy God dwelling with his unholy people, what does it take for that relationship to be established? 
Ultimately, that's what we see here in chapter 16. In chapter 16, we're seeing the ultimate, if you will, of sacrifices. And this sacrifice seemingly is a response. If you remember chapter 10, if you remember chapter 10, chapter 10, you have uh, uh, the two sons of Aaron, right? You had Nadab and Abihu, and they had they had desecrated in some sense the temple with their own sin. They had come in, they tried to make offering in their own way with their own with their own ideas, and as soon as they did the strange, they offered the strange fire, the Lord consumed them and killed them. And so now Leviticus chapter 16 is a response to that, if you will. It says in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. After the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, because of what happened to Nadab and Abihu, God is now saying, listen, here's how we're going to do it. You cannot come into the holy place anytime you want to. You cannot come anytime you want to. You're going to limit that time you come, one time a year into this place, and you're going to come in a certain way, in a certain method, and you'll see he's even going to have the censer and the smoke in the room so as to cover the mercy seat so they don't even lay their eyes on it. Because that mercy seat is the center of, of what God is doing amongst his people, representing him there. So this is a response to that. And now what I want to do, rather than reading all of these chapters, is kind of walk through, reconstruct, if you will, uh, with, uh, it's hard to reconstruct with precision. But let me just kind of walk through the process of this day of atonement from the text itself, Okay. Y'all kind of keep your eyes on it. We'll work through it. Verse 3. You, had the, you have the introduction there of chapter verse 1 and 2. Aaron is coming in. You can't come anytime you want to. You're not going to be able to look at the mercy seat. You can't come inside the veil. You're not going to be able to look at the mercy seat. And I'll appear in the cloud above it. So verse 3 starts it out. Aaron is to bring a bull and a ram into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Verse 4, he takes off his regular priestly clothing and bathes in water. Again in verse 4, he puts on the linen clothing. Uh, both of these acts take, takes place inside the tabernacle or behind the screen in the courtyard, if you will. Verse 5, he receives from the community two goats and a ram. He casts lots for the two goats in verse 8. In verse 11, he slaughters the bull. In verse 12, he takes the coals from the altar of burnt offering and a censer, as well as some incense, enters into the tabernacle, proceeds to enter into the most holy place, which may be one trip or two trips, and he takes this coals in there almost to create a smoke around the room. He sprinkles, in verse 14, he sprinkles some blood, some of the bull's blood on the atonement cover in the most holy place, as well as in front of the atonement cover. Verse 15, he goes back out to the courtyard and slaughters one of the goats. Verse 18, he re-enters the tabernacle in the most holy place and performs the same blood application with the goat's blood as he did the bull's blood. 
Verse 19, he performs additional sprinklings with the blood of the bull and the goat, mixing them together even perhaps in the holy place. Verse 20, he returns to the courtyard and places blood on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and then performs sprinkling of blood on the altar as well. Verse 21, he places his hands on the live goat and confesses the sins of the Israelites. In this way, placing all their sins on the live goat. Verse 22, an appointed person then leads the live goat away into the wilderness. Verse 23, Aaron enters the tabernacle, removes his linen clothes, bathes in water, and puts on his regular priestly clothing again. Verse 24, he returns to the courtyard and offers the burnt offerings for himself and the people, as well as offerings on the altar of the fat of the sin offerings. Verse 26, the man who led the live goat into the wilderness washes his clothes, bathes, and returns to camp. Verse 27, another man takes the hides, flesh, and intestines of the bull and the goat outside the camp and burns them. Verse 28, this man then washes his clothes, bathes, and returns to the camp. Now the reason why I'm going through all of that is first of all just to get us an understanding of the day but just to see all of the rituals that are a part of this time, this day, if you will, this sacrifice. These rituals have a very, have a way of teaching truth and values. And the more, by the way, so, so the rituals aren't just done randomly. We shouldn't see this as the Lord saying, do this and do that and do this and do that, just to get them to do something. Sometimes I would say the Lord does that, by the way. Sometimes we've talked about this, right? We've talked about things like Jericho or, or Gideon or, or times when the Lord seemingly gives them something to do just to prove their obedience and demonstrate that it's only God that accomplishes it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Do I need to go into that any? Like, like Jericho where he says, how are you going to march? How are you going to take down Jericho? March around at one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, seven times. Never say a word. After the seventh time, scream. Walls fall down, you win. Why is that elaborate battle plan in place? That ritual, if you will, a battle plan. Well, one reason I do believe is to demonstrate that this is God, not them, that accomplishes this. And this is just testing out their obedience and faithfulness. If you listen to what God says, you will be more than a conqueror, if you will, and follow in obedience. That's not what's happening here. I think all of this rituals that are in place have symbolic nature as to what is necessary or how we are to come before the Lord. And you walk through this and you see all that is necessary, all that has to take place. Now, let me point out just a couple, a couple things from this passage and, and just mention them. First of all, I mentioned already Nadab and Abihu in verse 2. And the warning that comes that Aaron cannot enter the most holy place anytime he wants. He must come on the day of atonement and this day only on account of the son's death. And then here you see uh, later that when he does come, he's to bring burning coals from before the Lord in contrast to unauthorized fire before the Lord of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, also, if you remember, Nadab and Abihu were carried out of the tabernacle in their linen tunics. Aaron must wear only his linen garments when he goes into the most holy place. We'll talk about it in a minute. We see the dangers that Aaron faces in this ritual, on this, uh, this scene is significant. 
The smoke from the burning coals, for example, he uses in the most holy place, conceals the atonement cover. He's not even to look at it. He's not even to glimpse upon it. If you remember, whenever, the God, whenever God came down to Mount Sinai, remember what covered the top of the mountain, right? Smoke and fire. So as to say, you can't even look at God. They heard the thundering voice. They heard the loud trumpet sounding from the smoke and the fire on atop the mountain. As if to say, you can't even glimpse to him. The smoke and the fire were, were hiding his presence with them. It's in the same sense of when the Israelites were marching through the wilderness and it was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, hiding the presence of God from them. You cannot even glimpse upon them. Now when Aaron goes in, he is to have this incense burning with, it, with him to placate the wrath of God and the danger, the danger that's at place. Now, I want to say how dangerous this is. It's a reminder for us that man... Even the priest is sinful here. That the bull has to be sacrificed for the priest's sins before he can even enter into the place. And so it reminds us of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And in both of these things, I believe we often take for granted or it becomes easy for us to forget, right? It becomes easy for us to get, forget just how holy God is. And what it takes to enter into his presence. And it becomes easy for us to forget just how sinful we are in and of ourselves. And how our sin now has not only separated us from God, but put us under the wrath of God. And so Aaron knew this particularly because his two sons went into that room that day without taking seriously the holiness of God and their sinfulness. And they were taken immediately. We've seen in other places in Scripture where when people do not take the holiness of God seriously, it comes to devastating results for them. Devastating results. And so here you see it with Aaron. He's facing some significant danger in this because he's going and stepping near to God. Near to God. The linen clothes that the priests were to wear during this ritual. Another thing during this process contribute to some of the ambiguity on the one hand these clothes are sacred if you will linen is angels clothing in Ezekiel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10 in the New Testament linen is associated with righteousness as in Revelation 19 8 on the other hand in contrast to the priests more ornate clothing and you remember the priest they had the they had the tunic with jewels on it and, and this ornate clothing that they would have. The linen stands in contrast to the priest's police more ornate clothing. The linen, even uh, though it was an expensive material, seems to represent a special humility appropriate for Aaron to enter into the room. In other words, his ornate clothing makes him look regal. He's, he's, he's representing the king before the people, right? And so... He doesn't want to look like a slave, if you will. He is a king's representative. So he has this ornate clothing of jewels that represents the people before he goes in and represents the king before the people. And so now, though, on this day, he takes off the ornate and he puts on the linen. And instead of looking regal and ornate, he looks humble. He looks humble and even as a servant who would enter into the presence of the Lord. Part of what being signified here. As even though usually according to royal protocol, they're supposed to wear that ornate clothing. Here, in this sense, it reflects a servant who is serving the king 
rather than one who is representing the king at this, at this time. Also in this, this sin offering that is offered and given here, what is it that it is doing? Um, what, uh, there, there's debate by some as commentators and others as to what the Day of Atonement offerings have to do with sins not previously atoned for. Remember, they have a sin offering that's earlier. But do you remember in those sin offerings well, a statement that kept coming up? The sins that were not done, right? Y'all remember that? Looking back there in, in, in uh, the early part of Leviticus, offering up these sin offerings. The whole congregation of Israel, verse 13, I think this is right. Uh, the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly they do one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt it says over and over again those sin offerings are for sins that are done unintentionally right we talked about this what's done unintentionally I believe what's happening here for the atonement is this is not just offering to cover those unintentional like before this is to cover all the sins of Israel even the intentional ones if you will this is to cover them completely and all of their sins. There is debate also uh, as to these two goats, and we'll get to that in a minute that's being used, and what their position is and what do they mean as sin offerings that are coming. And, and, and what does this term mean, especially if you look down in verse 8 and you see this, this one goat, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Now, this Azazel has called all, caused people all kind of conniption fits. And, and, and who is, what is, where is, they don't know. We don't have a clear like interpretation of this word, if you will, for a lot. So what does it mean? Um, how does it, what does it refer to? There's several different ideas about what this goat Azazel that goes to Azazel means. One, uh, some argue that it's a geographic region. They're sending this goat into the wilderness. Azazel is that wilderness. So we're sending them into the wilderness, a general geographic, geological, re a geological formation, such as a cliff or a mountain or rocky ground or geographical region that it's sending it to. That's where it's going. Some have said it means that. Others have said that it means just simply removal, or it means the goat removes, if you will. Some have said that this is the idea of a demon, a god or a demon, as if you give one goat to God, to the Lord, and another goat for Azazel, who is a god or a demon, as if you're taking the sins there. Now, all of these interpretations, uh, you know, what, what have you, there's, there's really no way we can speak absolutely definitively, although I'm about to. I do not think in any way Azazel is a demon or a god. You've got a major problem with that. Uh, you look over in chapter 17, verse 7, for example. You've got a problem about the place of sacrifice. So they shall no more sacrifice or sacrifices to goat demons after whom they... Y'all see that. And so ultimately you have that passage saying you don't sacrifice to goat demons so it would seem odd that God the true God of Israel the one true and living God he would receive an offering and you would give an offering to a goat 
demon or some other thing. I believe that's, we, we can remove that one. I believe also that the geographical location is some idea of wilderness, giving some sense to that. And that quite possibly be the case. I think, though, what is meant here by Azazel is this idea of putting two things together. It could be understanding as the go-away goat, if you will. It's a, it's a word that's meaning to go away or to send away. And you put that together also with it removes. I think these two things are two ways to understand Azazel. We have traditionally used it that way for understanding in our own text or what we think is true. So this is where we get the term scapegoat. If anybody is familiar with it, this is the scapegoat. It's the one that goes away or takes the blame and is sent away. It's the scapegoat. And so it's from Leviticus 16 that you get this term scapegoat. And I believe that's what this means. God, the Lord receives one and we send one away. We send one away. And I'll get to that, ultimately that point here in a little bit as we come back to it. Um, as we come back to that time. The other thing I think we see here is that the importance of this day established in the history of God's people. This day, if you look over with me in verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. And in that second half of that verse, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. From all your sins. So ultimately what this day is offering is a cleansing for God's people, all of them, for all their sins. Does that make sense to everybody? It's all of them for all their sins. To this point, the other, the other uh, offerings that were made in the scriptures were all for a reason, particular, giving some sense of, of for this or for that or for the other. And you have those six offerings that are given. They're all made for particular things. This Day of Atonement, done one time a year with all of its extravagance and with all of its rituals and with all of its stuff, is for God's people to find forgiveness and their, sin, their sins to be forgiven. All of their sins to be forgiven is to find that for all of them, right? To have their sins forgiven. This day is important. If God's people who are unholy because of their sinfulness are going to dwell with God, which is the whole purpose of them sa him saving them out of the land of Egypt, if they're going to dwell with him, they have to have their sins forgiven or they cannot stand before a holy God. So this day has that purpose. These things have that purpose. All right? So everybody, we've kind of given it through. I've kind of given you some details. And now let's get to the heart of it, if you will. What you see at the very center of this is, of course, the mercy seat of God. The lid of the ark, if you will. Pure gold. It's the most sacred place in Israelites, the Israelite religion. In fact, kapar means mercy seat. And so the day of the mercy seat, right? The Yom day, Kapur, speaking of this mercy seat. The day that our 
mercy is laid or our plea for mercy is laid at God's feet. This is that day. And so that's why this day is so important. It's the place where blood is applied. It's the place where the sacrificial blood is sprinkled. It's, it's where you're making a request of God to forgive you. That's why you're offering sacrifices. That's why this day is so important. It centers there. That's why it matters how Aaron himself comes before God. He comes not in his regal garments as if he is representing God to the people. He comes in his linen as if he's a servant representing the people to God. His role as priest was to intercede on their behalf. He's the mediator, right? So here on this day, he's mediating for the people before God as he brings the sacrifice. In this way, he comes humbly before God, recognizing he has no position and no place to enter in. It's only by God's favor and by God's grace and by the sacrifice that was made even for his sins that allows him to come in and present this before the Lord. He recognizes if he doesn't do this right, he will surely die. That's how important this is. It's life and death, not just for Aaron, but for the people. And so this day is important as Aaron comes in in his sinfulness, making atonement for his own sin, seeking forgiveness for God for him so that he may enter in. And then at the heart of this sacrifice are these two goats. Two goats. One goat is the goat of the sin offering. Look with me to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Here he is to take this one goat. He is to place his hands upon it, the sins of the people there, and he sacrifices it as a sin offering for the people. And then you have the second goat, verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So you have two goats. One goat is the sin offering for the people. Take its blood inside and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the other goat is the scapegoat, the live goat, that all the sins of the people are to be put upon and to send it away into the wilderness, away from the people. I want us to think about this in two, two Bible terms. These are two words that you will never probably use in everyday vocabulary. But I'm pretty sure, you know, like we have Christianese. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we speak a different language in some ways for some people, words that nobody ever uses. But these two words, though, they are rare words being used. You may, you may could use one of them. But though they're rare words being used, they have major significance in understanding what Christ has done for us on the cross. The first word is propitiation. Propitiation. How many of y'all have used propitiation in a sentence 
within the last month. Okay, good. And if you did, you probably had to tell everybody what it meant. Propitiation is a Bible word, though, and it has great importance as to what it does. Propitiation simply means for us to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy God's wrath. An object that deserves God's wrath satisfies God's wrath. And then when that propitiation is made, the wrath of God having been satisfied on that, that wrath is turned away from others because it's been satisfied here. Does that make sense? So we use this word propitiation. It's in the Bible, like I said. Look, at, look with me to Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, I'll tell you that they tried to take propitiation out of the Bible. True story. The, for, for so many years, the King James Version dominated the English Bible translations, right? And so everybody had that. They recognized, many people recognized that uh, the King James Version, that language speaking that way uh, really has gone out of fashion. Nobody talks like that anymore. Now, I know some of y'all, don't hear me. I, the King, you can love the King James Version. You can love it all you want to, but publicly stand up and try to read the original King James Version and you will have lost me and I like to consider myself pretty smart. I mean, we just don't, the, you, you got to think in your head, the thou's and the this, you got to change it all and you're like speaking, like I'm interpreting what that means before I, so it's, it's, you know, we don't talk like that anymore. They saw this in the mid 19th century and one of the first translations that they came out with was the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. Anybody remember when the RSV came out? RSV, by the way, is not some sound of cold you get in your, in your lungs. Revised Standard Version. When they did that, the RSV tried to kind of make the language more modern and update, and they believed that the word propitiation was too far out of date. So they changed it to something else. And when they did, trying to change it to something else, man, so many people got upset. That's the liberal Bible, right? Because they've taken out propitiation. They've taken out the blood. There's some truth to that. I like the word propitiation in there. And just because big words are in there doesn't mean we need to get rid of them. It means y'all just need to understand them better. You know what I mean? Look them up. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And so now we're talking about Jesus is our high priest, merciful and faithful. So Aaron, our high priest, had to make a sacrifice on our behalf, uh, on his own behalf, excuse me, before he could enter in because he was a sinner. But not this Jesus who's our priest who's merciful and faithful. There's no sacrifice that needed to be made for him before he entered into the throne room of God, right? And what does it say? He is now made like us. And so he's the perfect high priest because he is God, fully God, and he's fully man. So he now can intercede for me and for you because he's made like us in every respect and he is fully God. So now he is the one who can step into that space in between us and God and make it right again. He's the perfect high priest. 
And what did he do whenever he stepped into that space? He was sent there to make propitiation. Everybody got that? This is my translation, the ESV. Yours may have something different there. But to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He stepped in as the perfect high priest, interceding on behalf of man before God as the perfect mediator because he's both God and man, and he made propitiation. In other words, Jesus took our sin, and by taking our sin, he goes to the cross, and he bears the wrath of God. He bears the wrath of God, so much so that there is no wrath left for those who believe in him. You see, our problem is, in many ways, we got, we got a bunch of problems, and we can list them all night. But our problem is that God's holiness, to put it this way, is an infinite holiness. There's no end to it. There's no degrees to it. It's, it's, it's ad infinitum. It's over, it's over and over again. It continues forever for all eternity. And any sin that we commit against God's holiness because his holiness is infinite demands a eternal punishment. Does that make sense to everybody? What's required when we sin against God's holiness is a payment that we will spend eternity making and that comes from one sin. That's how holy God is. Just one sin is enough to condemn us to condemn us underneath the wrath of God for eternity. And you may say, Josh, that doesn't seem fair or right. Well, first of all, I didn't make the rules. Second of all, do you really want a God who is not that holy? What limit would you put on him? Where would you want to draw the line? Where would you want to say, this is as far as I want my God to go? This is as far as this. No, we serve a God who is limitless in his holiness. This is who we serve and who we follow. And one sin against him is an act of rebellion against his holiness. And because his holiness is infinite, it determines an eternal punishment. Now you think about how our criminal justice system works. You start adding cases together. Have y'all ever, ever seen where you, you hear this person got life in prison three times to serve consecutively? The point in that is to demonstrate injustice. Nobody can serve three consecutive life imprisonments, right? But the point of that is in our justice system, it demonstrates how terrible the crime is and it brings justice to all of its victims, right? Because even though he can't serve them, that's what he gets. How much more so for God, who we sin against, who created us and made us, who's holy in every way, who is good and righteous in all things. How much more so should our sin not only carry with it an eternal punishment, but an eternal punishment served consecutively all throughout, all throughout the scope of history and the future. Jesus comes in. And the reason why I say all that is because I want you to understand what propitiation means. Jesus takes our sin upon himself 
And because he never sinned, he can pay because he is infinitely holy himself. He can pay the full price of our sin on the cross on a Friday. And on the cross on that Friday, he bore the full weight of it. And what I mean by that is all of the wrath of God was poured out upon him that we deserved for all eternity. You see, that's exactly what Romans 3 tells us. God sent him to be a propitiation for our sins, he says. He bore everything that we deserved. He took it all. He drank the cup of wrath, and there is no drop left. That's what Jesus did for us. He's the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. And I am convinced when the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Romans to live holy lives and follow after the Lord, he pins a little verse. I'm convinced he pins that verse through tears when he says, Therefore, there, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you know what it took to be able to say that verse? It took Christ to bear all of the condemnation for us. I, I think Christianity is pretty simple. I mean, it begins with falling in love with Jesus. It's a relationship, right? It's an understanding. And I think we are all better believers when we fall in love with Christ Jesus. And we fall in love with Christ when we just start to comprehend just a little bit of what he did for me and you. He bore the full wrath of God. He was that goat, if you will. When I say that, and jokingly say, behold, you know, you don't hear it this way. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, you know, behold, the goat of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says the Lamb of God. But I believe in saying the Lamb of God, what John is doing, the Baptist there, is he's drawing in our attention to all of the sacrificial system that's in place. He's drawing our attention to all of it to say that's the sacrifice. I think it includes these two goats because you got the second one as well. Not only is he the propitiation, the sacrificial goat that is offered on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, he's also the scapegoat. Now, many people have tried to determine who the scapegoat was and think through in the picture. Some have said Barabbas, you know, he's the scapegoat. He, you put the sin on him and send him out. Some have said it's the people of Israel who are screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. It's that. Those are the ones who are the, representing the sin that are going out into the world as sinners. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think both of these goats are fulfilled with what Christ does on the cross. Because while the first word is propitiation, the second word is expiation. Expiation. Expiation is the idea of removal. To expiate something is to remove something. 
And so expiation is the removal of sin from his people. Does everybody in here know Psalm 103? I'm sure y'all have it memorized and you, you, you know it and you're like, yes, I know it. And so you've got it down. I'm sure that's the case, but let me read a verse for you in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Man, the Psalms are good, aren't they? Picture that. As high as the heavens, that's how great his love is for you. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I believe that's the symbolism that the scapegoat is doing. Not only is he fulfilling and propitiating the wrath of God for us, he's removing our sin from us, taking it away. He's the goat, if you will, who the sins are placed upon, and then you send him out to remove him from the people. He's the scapegoat that expiates the sin of the people away from them as far as the east is from the west. So not only... Not only is he propitiating the wrath of God, he's making us righteous in and of himself by removing our sin as far as the east is from the west. Taking it away. That's why I believe here these, both these goats are representative of what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's removing our sin. He's satisfying the wrath of God and taking our sin away from us, removing it from the camp itself, from our presence with him. How can we who are sinful be in the presence of a holy God, it's only because our sins have been removed. They've been taken away. They're as far as the east is from the west. And you say, Josh, I'm still a sinner. Yes, you are. You're right. But because of the sacrifice of God, all we have to do is speak now and say, Father, forgive me, and they're gone. He expiates them again and again in removing them from us because of what he has done. You see, this day of atonement has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's the great high priest who didn't need a bull to be sacrificed on his behalf to enter into the presence of God. He is the, the goat that is the sacrifice on our behalf that propitiates the wrath of God. He is the goat that is sent out into the wilderness that, that expiates the sins of the people away from them so that God can dwell with his righteous people. He's the one who does all of that for us. And he came not in regal robes with a crown and a tunic with jewels on it, he came as a humble servant who entered into the presence of God for us, representing us before him, propitiating, propitiating the sins that we have. That's who he is. That's why it's right for us not to celebrate Yom Kippur anymore as God's people. What's right for us to do is every day thank God that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has entered in on our behalf. That he has taken the wrath of God away from us. That he has taken our sins away from us. And that now we can enter into the presence of God having had our sins removed and the wrath taken. We can enter into the presence. So the reason why Aaron 
had to do the smoke, cover the mercy seat, enter in probably with a little fear and trepidation because I don't know about y'all, if I was Aaron and just saw Nadab and Abihu get burned up with the strange fire, I would be thinking, I don't know if I want to go up in there. He goes timidly, if you will, surely, right? Going into this life or death moment, he enters into it timidly. So you recognize now after explaining how Jesus is our great high priest, how Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, how Jesus has, has taken the wrath of God and propitiated it so we do not bear it anymore, how Jesus has taken our sin and expiated it so, so they are as far from us as the east is from the west, how Jesus has done all of that, and the author of Hebrews can say to us now, come boldly into the throne of God. Not one day a year. Not with the smoke covering it up. Now we behold his face in all of its glory as the face of Jesus Christ, right? Now we see him for who he is and we come boldly into his throne room, not with timidity. Why would we come scared? Because we have a savior, a high priest who has satisfied God's wrath and removed our sin. We can now come boldly into the throne room. We come boldly in the name of Jesus. Why? would we dare not take advantage of that opportunity? The Lord says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. He told the Israelites, you got one day to come in here. You better watch it that day if you want your sins to be forgiven. He tells us, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Come boldly into my presence. That is all. Because Christ Jesus has satisfied the atonement necessary that God demands for our sin. He's done it for us. Leviticus 16 is pointing us directly to the cross. Y'all remember in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, sin enters in. And once sin enters in and Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, I said something then. I'm sure, again, y'all remember it perfectly. I said that from Genesis 3 on, there's no way out but the cross. There's like not another option. There's not another place. There's no second door, first door. There's no other road to take. From Genesis 3, at the time that sin entered in, we're going to the cross. And what's happened, every little step throughout the text is pointing us there. It's pointing us there. Leviticus 16 takes us a big leap forward as to look what happens on the cross. Jesus propitiates the wrath of God and expiates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. When we read Leviticus, as I've said a thousand times, we just simply come away going, thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who saved me from my sin, who bore my wrath in my place, he who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Thank you for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, may we be thankful tonight if for nothing else other than Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I pray that everybody in this room knows Jesus not only as Savior and Lord, 
but also understands what that means, God, that their, their sins have been forgiven and removed, that, that the wrath that they deserved has been, has been drunk by Christ Jesus himself, and there is no wrath left. So now, God, for those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Father, may we all celebrate that in our own hearts and our own lives even now. God, if someone is here that does not know you, Father, may they know today that all they have to do because of what Christ has done is call upon the name of the Lord and they can be saved too. Thank you, Father, for a Savior who not only hears us, who not only sees us and hears us, but has the power to save us. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll see y'all Sunday.